This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back. This is Catherine Klein on Dollars and Chain. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are joined in this segment by uh, my colleague in the management department here at Wharton, the uh, Professor Viet Hennish, the Deloitte and Touche Professor of Management. Um, and we're going to be talking about ESG investing and the, the kind of research you've been doing around ESG, sustainable investing, uh, corporate risk, and more. So, you know, for our listeners, we, we talk a lot on this show about impact investing. We talk a little bit less about ESG investing. We throw around the term ESG, environment, social, and governance. Um, but, but V, let's let's start out with how would you describe the the focus of your work? Is it sustainable investing? Is it ESG investing? Is it ESG metrics? Where are you? What's captivating your interest in your research right now? So right now I'm focused on this exciting space, which as you sort of note is is evolving really rapidly where firms are dealing with non-traditional risks, risks that emanate from um, the social sector, from the external stakeholders around them, whether they be community leaders, NGOs, or government officials uh, who are uh, upset or concerned about pollution, about uh, human rights, about social rights, and that's translating into material risks for the company. I'm not looking at it uh, from a, solely from a social perspective, mm-hmm. solely from a social welfare. I'm trying to say that when stakeholders are upset, when they're outraged and they protest and they sue the company uh, and they demand regulatory action, that's a material risk that the company needs to deal with. And the companies that deal with it better uh, can deliver st- uh, superior sustainable returns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, you've hinted at some of the, the specifics at that, the kind of risks you're talking about. But, um, you know, so paint a few, let's get more concrete. I know you have examples of, you know, help our listeners think about, oh, right, that's going to, yeah, that's a real risk for that company. Oh, right, you know, I don't think highly of this company when I hear that they're doing X. Uh, Is this Uber? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you can look at the new economy in Uber. I started looking at the kind of the the older industries, the the gold mines, the Mm -hmm. oil fields. I mean, how much is ExxonMobil worth today? Uh, If you're trying to value that company, uh, you start with the value of its reserves. Uh, but what's the price of oil going to be in 10 or 20 years? Mm-hmm. How is it going to compare? Uh, um, how are carbon fuels going to compare to uh, solar, wind, others? In order to value the future of Exxon, you need to understand whether we're going to have a carbon tax, what our climate change policy is going to be, uh, what a two-degree solution looks like. Uh, and ExxonMobil has a duty to, to disclose that uh, mm-hmm. to its shareholders. Uh, so that's one type of example. And do they? Um, there's a lot of pressure on them, too. Uh, and there's uh, that's really the first place where you're starting to see this integration, where what used to be thought of as an ESG risk is now all of a sudden being pressured to be in the annual report, right. not just in the sustainability report. Um, ExxonMobil is not one of the leaders uh, in that space, but they're certainly under pressure to disclose and reveal um, the sensitivity uh, of their forecasts uh, to different um, climate change policies. Interesting. Uh, and, and again, and, and, but in, you talk about, uh, you began by talking about sort of stakeholders who are putting pressure, stakeholders who are protesting. That's mm-hmm. um, not as clear to me in the ExxonMobil example. So is there an, are, are there other kinds of examples that you're thinking about? Sure. I mean, just in the ExxonMobil case, it's mm. the case that so many people are pushing for some sort of um, a carbon tax, some sort of cl- policies to address climate change. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, a simpler example is... Uh, uh, you know, a gold mine in Romania uh, sitting on a couple million ounces of gold. 
where the development of the mine uh, has been wrapped up in uh, corruption scandals, concerns around the use of cyanide, uh, and uh, the government has been reluctant to move forward uh, with the environmental permitting of the mine. Uh, and it's been sitting fallow for now 15 years oh. uh, since the first development project. Uh, this could have been a, a $10 billion project in the heart mm -hmm. of the European Union, uh, but it's still sitting there, uh, still waiting for approvals now uh, with lawsuits against the government, uh, with uh, arbitration uh, at the World Bank's uh, facility. So uh, that's a more concrete example where concerns by uh, some um, international activists and some citizens in Romania around corruption have um, pushed aside or, or led to the suspension of the development of a project. Yeah. So these are compelling examples of why corporations need to be attentive to these social environmental risks, the larger policy, um, you know, the, the, the implications and why that, as you say, is so material for, for financial performance and growth of these companies. What are you, these, these examples sound so persuasive what are you studying? Do you need to like? Do we need? Do we need research on this? Like, this like that sounds like a no-brainer. You know, I, I I think we always feel a little bit like that as academics we when do. we spend a couple of years uh, showing something to be true, and people are like, like well, well, yeah, we sort of knew that. <laughs> it's like, actually, you know, we we weren't sure. Um, right. And and I think it's important. So in in the piece of research um, that I'm uh, working on right now, which is sponsored by Calvert. Um, uh, it's just, uh, we're trying to get inside the relationship that I was describing. There's been a, a burst of activity not looking at how environment, social, and governance factors affect stock prices. That's been a longstanding question. Is there an alpha? How much do we have to give up in terms mm -hmm. of returns? Uh, can we reduce the volatility of returns? Uh, but if you think about who takes a long-term perspective, who's really looking 10, 20 years out, it's more the creditors. And so there's been a surge of interest looking at bonds, looking at loans, and trying to see if better management of environment, social, and governance risk factors affects oh. uh, loan spreads, affects credit spreads, affects credit default swap spreads. And there's been this implicit argument that it's because of things like lawsuits, regulatory actions, strikes, you know, volatility of earnings, which affects the ability to pay back the loan, mm -hmm. and creditors should be concerned to that. But that last piece, there hadn't actually been any empirical research on. Of, of whether creditors are really able to assess this and pay attention or can do better than they have been. Well, no, the, it's the specific mechanism because there is mm. data that shows that credit default swap spreads, credit spreads, and loan spreads actually do correlate what, with the what, what do these terms mean? So the amount that you have to pay above some baseline interest rate, about mm -hmm. some risk-free return for your loan. So mm -hmm. a riskier project, you have to pay a higher interest rate. And the amount you pay actually goes up if you're not very good on ESG. Okay. Uh, credit default swap spreads are uh, financial derivatives that are basically whose price is correlated with the likelihood that a bond will default. And so you see credit default swap spreads, essentially mm -hmm. the insurance on a bond, also mm -hmm. moving mm -hmm. with these ESG risks. But, but people hadn't really zeroed in on why that's happening or what are the mechanisms. And what we did was pull information from the Bloomberg terminals on what are called credit events. Uh, these are material events which could impact uh, the, the payback of a bond, things like lawsuits, regulatory actions, and strikes. And we found striking increases uh, for firms that are um, – uh, firms that are not managing well their social risks, particularly in this project, we're looking at the risk of managing indigenous land claims. And so for major projects that are close 
uh, to indigenous populations. Think, I mean, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a great example mm -hmm, here in the United mm -hmm, States. Mm -hmm. Um, but many of these large uh, oil fields, pipeline projects, um, uh, they're, they're close to lands that are claimed by indigenous groups in Latin America and Asia and Africa. And that proximity generates a real need to manage your stakeholder relations. Um, <clears throat> sorry, to work with stakeholders, to come to an understanding of who's gonna sh how are you going to share the benefits. Yeah. And if you don't do that well, they're going to be protesting. They're going to be filing injunctions. They're going to be demanding investigations. And we actually show that these events are 50% uh, to 160% more likely for projects that are proximate to indigenous land claims. Mm -hmm. And that correlation is even higher or stronger for firms that aren't rated well on environment, social, and governance. Uh, interesting. We're talking with Viet Hennish, the Deloitte and Touche Professor of Management at the Wharton School, talking about his research on stakeholder relationships, ESG, and so on. Uh, going back to your example, Viet, the, uh, of, of uh, these companies that are working uh, in close proximity to ind indigenous populations, does that then result? So, I, if I'm doing this, if I'm in this area, I'm, you know, in, as you described, in, in, North, South Dakota, Dakotas. I'm not sure. Um, if I'm if I'm if I'm this company, I'm working in this area. I'm not managing these relationships well with these populations. There are protests and so on. Are you then sh bringing this to say that as a result, I'm at my company is a greater uh, likelihood of ending up having to pay more, uh, you know, for the loans for the long-term investments that we are getting? They are. Um, our research tries to get at why. Why are why are the creditors suspicious? What is it that they're worried about? Well, they're worried that there's going to be an, a regulatory action, which is going to lead to the delay by a year of the construction of the pipeline, which means a year before there's any yeah. revenue. Um, that there's a greater likelihood of a lawsuit, which is going to claim they're violating um, maybe formal land claims or they're violating civil rights or human rights. That, mm -hmm. Uh, or that there's a, a strike, you know, that maybe some of the workers who are there. So we're showing why. Yeah. Um, the fact creditors are charging more. I mean, other scholars have shown that. There's been a, a burst of activity uh, in, the, in the accounting literature look, exploring that correlation. Uh, and it, but the, the explanation for where should you look and where are companies, um, where are the variances that are causing those loans to be less likely to be paid back or to be riskier is what we're really digging into. Got it. Interesting. And are corporations able to mitigate those risks? I mean, some of it sounds like it's it's external. There may be regulatory things coming down the way. There's the relationships with the stakeholders where clearly they can take some action at. So how mm -hmm. much can they kind of control and mitigate that? Um, well, that's, I mean, that's really the material I teach in my course here at Wharton on corporate diplomacy. And um, there's, there's a lot that companies can do. I mean, you start by knowing who your stakeholders are. You do all this due diligence on how do we build the pipeline? Where's the gas? What's the price of gas? But have you actually mapped your stakeholders? Have you, do you know where the indigenous land claims are? Have you mapped the issues they care about? Have you uh, looked at the issues of education, development, poverty? Um, what are the social stresses on that population? And then have you thought about it not as a philanthropic activity, not as something that you do because you're nice, because you've got some extra money, and that's the wrong attitude. This pipeline isn't going to get built if you haven't addressed the indigenous issues, if you don't have their relationships, if you don't, if you don't have their support, if you haven't won the hearts and minds. So you have to think about the project overall, building the pipeline, financing it, the cost of gas, and the cost of winning the hearts and minds altogether. And that may mean shifting your operational plan, shifting your financial plan. You have to take it from a more holistic enterprise risk management perspective. 
And then how do you know you're actually doing that? Well, someone on the board should be looking at your stakeholder map. Someone should be looking at your stakeholder management system, at your enterprise risk management system. There should be some, um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, it should be validated by auditors. It should be externally audited. Um, There should be uh, the people who are staffing your stakeholder and risk management functions shouldn't just be specialists or consultants who pop in and out. It should be part of the senior management rotation. You want to get into the C-suite? You should have gone through external affairs. You should have gone through community engagement. That should just be part of the process. And everybody's financial package, everyone's compensation, and everyone's promotion should be influenced by how well their uh, company and their unit is working with external stakeholders. Yeah, Those again, are the things that lead yeah, companies Not do. because it's philanthropic, but because it's very material to the business. Right, right. right. And, and uh, Veet, so if you, uh, that was a great explanation. If, uh, for our listeners who are thinking, yeah, I don't know, if, you know, does my company, how do I know who my company's stakeholders are? Do my I guess is probably not. Yeah, right. I'm, uh, you know, hmm, I haven't thought much about this, and they may be thinking this as a founder or as an employee. How do you, can you, can you, what questions should they be asking Oops. to understand who is my stakeholder? And you know, we could be thinking of this as at Warden, who are our stakeholders? If you know, we're you know, who is it who created this com- this computer screen in front of me? Uh, who are Dell's? It's a Dell monitor. Who's you know, who are Dell's stakeholders? How how do you get more clarity on? I mean, that seems that like it seems like a ridiculous question, but how do you get more clarity on who your stakeholders are? Well, I think the it's easy to think of the stakeholders are inside the value chain. I think companies do a pretty good job of that, suppliers, buyers, um, workers. Um, but then it's the external stakeholders that are harder. And I think there are three easy questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not a priority or a ranking. It's just three questions that will help you fill out the roster. The first one is who's directly affected by what I'm doing? Who's uh, richer or poorer? sicker or healthier, Mm -hmm. who faces a direct impact based on my organization's activity. And then the the next tier is who's directly affected by my supplier's or buyer's activity. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're targeted not because of what you're doing, but because of something your supplier or your buyer is doing. uh, And you're just a convenient target Mm -hmm. to influence them. And then the third one is the trickiest one where it really gets most broad is who just cares about what I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can care because they care, you know, in the case of the Wharton School, they care about the, the educational sector in the United mm-hmm. States, or they care about management education. Uh, anyone who has an ax to grind in your space can suddenly target you. And, and that's where a lot of the, you know, the NGOs, uh, the social activists will come in uh, because they're more broadly concerned around something like human rights or the environment, uh, and you're having an impact on that. Right. Um, they're not directly affected by you. They're not materially affected. They're not sicker or healthier, but they just care about pollution or they care about water, and you're doing something that affects water, so you become a target. So, Veet, as I'm listening to this description, it, you know, it's just fascinating, uh, I'm reminded of a um, of talking with Jeff Pfeffer. So um, Jeff Pfeffer, professor at Stanford, you obviously you know, know his work and mm-hmm. uh, a management professor. Jeff has done recent work. He's got a new book out called "Dying for," yeah, "Dying for a Paycheck." Uh, and um, so when you know when you raised the question, your first question was, "You should be asking who's directly affected by my work." His work would would say. You know, hello, it's your workers, sure. uh, and and uh, he's done you know a, a, a deep dive looking at stre- essentially stressful work conditions, layoffs, unpredictable work, work family conflict, low autonomy, uh, changeable hours, and so on. Um, 
I hear you being more focused on external, you know, uh, stakeholders outside the mm -hmm. business, where he's taking a hard look at stakeholders inside the business. You know, what first made me think about this connection is you, he, he talked about businesses needing to think of themselves not only as as stewards of their of their employees' health, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, I think that was his expression. You know, and and contrasted that with there's more understanding today that the businesses are, are stewards of the larger maybe stewards of the larger physical natural environment that they're responsible for pollution effectively he's talking about you know social pollution mm -hmm. and workplace pollution yeah. um, how do you think about that are you are you and, and Jeff on to Je uh, looking in somewhat different areas but on the same theme I think it's very much the same theme. I mean, I would group uh, Jeff's arguments together with our colleague Adam Grants uh, and those of our former colleague Alex Edmonds, mm -hmm. uh, who have each uh, focused on how employees can be more productive uh, in the case of Adam uh, and how investors who choose companies that treat their employees better in the case of Alex Edmonds actually do better. So you choose if you build an investment portfolio on companies that are highly ranked in terms of the quality, um, the, the rankings of their workers, of the, of the employers. Uh, that generates sustainable returns. So I think it's a, an extension, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have to recognize um, that there's a longer term set of relationships we have with both internal and external stakeholders. We want our workers to stay. We want them to be productive. We want them to innovate. We also want our community members and the governments and civil society outside the fence mm -hmm. uh, to be working with us and cooperating with us in the longer term. So it's exactly the same logic. I think it's a little easier to see for your workers, uh, but I think a lot of the lessons translate over, uh, and it's often the same companies who treat their workers better who take the same logic and say, well, why don't we have better relations with the community? Right. Or why don't we have better relations um, with these uh, civil society organizations? So your, your, your comments are, are sparking lots of questions for me. We're talking with Veet Hennish, Hennish, Professor of Management at the Wharton School. But I'm going to throw this one to you, Cheryl, or you can chime in, Veet. As you d d talk about relationships with a larger community, and I'm sitting here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm thinking about Philadelphia and who feels, um, you know, this this sense of responsibility and understands the importance of the larger community. Um, there are a lot of conversation around uh, Wharton. Penn Cheryl's looking at me. Where is she going? <laughs> around anchor in, anchor institutions. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm wondering if this kind of you know is this notion of an anchor institution and what an anchor institution is in a in a community. Is this? Do you, are you hearing similarities to what Veet is describing? If an anchor institution takes its role seriously, are they doing what Veet's describing? Is there a different you know mindset? emphasis? No, I think it's very similar. I mean, the point of the, the anchor institutions is that these are things that aren't going to move. You know, University of Pennsylvania is not going to move out to Malvern if things go badly here. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very much tied to the community in a mm -hmm. variety of ways. And I think this has increasingly created some sense about how do we um, work with our community so that it improves, but then also that our relationship improves. There's actually a great new book that's coming out, uh, maybe an author you could have on a future show, by uh, Miles Shaver at the University of Minnesota. Mm. Uh, and he really for looks um, at the broader set of companies. I mean, Minnesota, Minneapolis oh. has an enormous density of Fortune 500 headquartered companies. 3M, I think of, right? 3M, Target. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm embarrassed I don't know more. But they're, they're pretty involved. Right. Well, and all of them have had a long-term, uh, very pr- forward-looking orientation towards how they manage their relationships with the community. And, um, you know, they haven't been as focused on quick tax breaks and, and these little transactional things that, that you often see. They've really thought about how do we make this a great place for families, for um uh, for the you know, make people come here for the universities, make people want to come here and want to stay here. And uh, in his book, he really details over decades the kinds of uh, influence that the companies have had and the way that shaped the Minneapolis environment and, and made it a successful headquarters city uh, in contrast, honestly, to some places like Philadelphia where we really yeah. had a hollowing out. I mean, uh, UPenn has stayed, but, but many companies actually did leave, right? right. The exodus to, to North Carolina, to Delaware, to um, New Jersey. Uh, was really striking, and so uh, what a fascinating topic! It, right, reminds me of uh, we need know, to get that book and the guy on. Yes. Yeah, we need to get that book, but also even just reminds me of our first guest who was talking about the you know the ecosystem of, mm-hmm. of these you know different countries taking on digital payments. You're talking about an ecosystem at a at a, at a uh, you know a more local level, the ecosystem of a city. Well, but it goes all the way uh, in Minneapolis, yes. But the logic that we're talking about goes from your workers to the community around you. Um, to the regional government, the national government. I mean, thinking about the socio-political system. I, I think the ecosystem is a nice analogy, and it's thinking about how everything is interconnected, and our relationship as a company with that entire socio-political ecosystem is important for our long-term returns. And when we just focus on the short term, when we just focus on what minimizes costs today, we're often creating the basis for anger and a backlash, mm-hmm. maybe next year, maybe five years from now. But if we look out into the long term and we don't incorporate that, if our financial models miss those uh, connections, um, we're not going to be a company that's going to be around in the long right. term. And I know you don't do research on this, but we're seeing, um, and we've had several guests on who've talked about it, companies doing a little bit more around advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, taking not just the sort of social environment, but, but really taking a political stance like Nike, right? It's a great example. Yeah, no, I, um, we... Uh, when there are issues like whether it's immigration, racial tensions, um, there are a number of them today, trade policy, uh, where so many companies have a stake in the policy outcome, um, I think there's a responsibility of companies to engage on some of these issues. And I think you're seeing that. And um, particularly, you know, Nike is uh, appealing to a, uh, a younger urban demographic. I mean, I, th- I think it, it stands with its image. I, I think the people are expecting CEOs and expecting companies uh, to weigh in on some of these social challenges. And uh, it's a delicate question. I mean, go back to Ken Frazier's um, decision uh, to leave the president's council uh, early on in the Trump presidency. Um, but I, I think some of these issues are so large and so material uh, that companies do have a responsibility to act and, and speak about what they value and what their stakeholders are concerned about. Interesting. And, and, and at least in some of these cases, it seems to me, there's a, there may be a tension for that the, the CEOs have to reconcile between short-term response and long-term response, right? That some of these, you know, you may, I can just imagine you may in these statements, you know, anger some uh, customers, anger sure. some people of people. Uh, sure, right. people were burning the Nike shoes, but exactly. um, they were also, you know, uh, they were also buying. <laughs> right. There was right. a surge yeah. of interest. Yes. So yes. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, you have to... You, 
CEOs shouldn't do this based on a personal whim. They, have, they do have, when they're acting out on, on these advocacy issues, they have to make clear when they're speaking for the company. And I think the right. Nike was a, was a powerful one where they felt that their stakeholders um, were identified um, with some of the racial, with, with the whole host of injustice right. and, and so challenges. Let, let, me, let me push you on that, on a Nike example or the example you've just, you know, this, this kind of advocacy speaking out. If the CEO, the board comes to you and says, you know, we're wrestling with what should we say and should we say anything, would you say to us, what are your values? Or would you say to us, what are the, what are the material risks? Or would you say both? I, I, would, I would start with, let's look at what your stakeholders' uh, issues of concern are. Mm. And your stakeholders will include your workers. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll include your customers. Um, they'll include the community ar uh, around your facilities and try to understand that that map of issues of, of concern, issues that are keeping your stakeholders both internal and external up at night. Um, and if um, there are issues that are really present in the policy debate uh, in which you know you might have some influence and in, that are tied to your values, that are tied to your brand, when you have that alignment, mm -hmm. what do my stakeholders care about? What are my corporate values? Um, what ties into a risk or opportunity, then there's room for, right, for action. Right. But it takes careful analysis. And yeah, it's easy I, well, to it's up. clear that when you're, yeah. you know, your question is really helpful in stimulating that kind of careful analysis. Like, right, let's, this is not a, a space for just knee-jerk knee reactions no. could swing you, right, to making a, a kind of rash decision. But one thing I want to talk about, we don't have a lot of time left, but one thing I want to talk with you about is data. Like, do we, because you've been very interested in investment practices, mm -hmm. How good is the data that we have on on companies oh, on these different on these different di dimensions? Well, there's a really stinging Wall Street Journal article in the last couple of days that looks at a number of different ESG rating providers, environment, social, and governance factors, and looks at Alphabet, Apple, and I remember the third company. And basically, there's almost no correlation across them. And it's really frightening if you do this more systematically. I mean, the journal article was cute, um, but there's actually a study um, that looks at the correlation across hundreds or thousands of companies on these metrics. And um, if you look at bond ratings, you know, S&Ps, Moody's, and Fitch, they're correlated between 90 and 95%. ESG ratings are correlated between 5 and 50%. Ooh, wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of noise. And so we really have to be careful when we're using them. But what's exciting is we're starting to see new data providers that are using not just information that the company provides mm -hmm. uh, in their sustainability reports or in response to surveys, but are um, using artificial intelligence, natural language parsing to surf uh, the web, news media, government regulatory filing, social media, and try to map on what stakeholders are saying about companies to environment, social, and governance risk factors. Uh, one of those companies I have an academic site license to, it's called True Value Labs. Mm -hmm. And I've been really impressed with the data feed uh, and the ability uh, to listen to the, what the stakeholders say about the companies instead of what the companies say about themselves. And that's got to be better information. So the one pushback I hear about this, and maybe this is just like, you know, a, um, maybe you can, maybe you'll dismiss it um, and say, yeah, that's an anecdote and not true the data, is the following. Yes, 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 but if you follow social media, um, there are waves of interest in mm -hmm. things. You know, the Me Too, and Me Too is an obvious example, like, whoa, what happened in 2018? You know, oh my God, there's so many sexually harassing companies and so many sexually harassing CEOs. You know, wow, 
that changed. Um, well, no, that didn't change. We don't think that interests changed. Or the other example I've sometimes heard is Syrian refugees. Whoa, we're really concerned about Syrian refugees. Then the news media, you know, loses it loses attention, and mm -hmm. and we don't go there. Well, what's important, I think, uh, if you're going to do this, is how do you normalize the information you've got? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, I think it's, if you were trying to say, uh, how are companies doing morally on uh, gender equality? You know, looking at social media and media is a real problem for the reason you just mm -hmm. described. But how is Apple doing relative to Facebook, relative to Alphabet? Mm -hmm. Looking at percentile ranks, which is what these methodologies are based on, I think the ranking of companies and the relative performance of companies uh, should be less influenced by these waves. It, yeah. it could be influenced by a prominent story around a, a company, but maybe that prominent story came out because of a scandal or because of a lawsuit. So I, I, I think you're on better grounds when you're looking at relative performance than absolute. Because mm -hmm. in theory, they're all affected by whatever that, that blip is yeah. of interest. And yeah. you're seeing which companies are showing up with more negative news or more lawsuits. Right. So it's lawsuits, it's news. Is it also Twitter feed and what people's comments on Glassdoor, you know, you should never work at this lousy company if you're female, what is it? Uh, well, they're different. You know, True Value is one provider. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there are others based in Europe. So I, I think they're trying to sift through, um, you know, these terabytes of data and pull out what's really material. But uh, there is still a long way to go uh, in terms of providing enough reliability, enough time series, enough precision uh, to really guide both creditor and equity investors and managers. I think that's the ultimate goal. Make this a management tool so you yeah. know where you're performing better or worse. Interesting. Um, we have uh, um, just another minute or two, so maybe we'll, we'll, we'll both try to be succinct. For our listeners, they're hearing, I'm sure your depth, you know, they can hear your depth of expertise. You can, they can hear your research expertise. They may be thinking, wow, these issues are really fascinating. I want to learn more. I want to pay a little bit more attention to these things, but I'm not going back to school right now. How do they do that? Uh, CorporateDiplomacy.com is a good place. Ah. My, uh, <laughs> in 2016, the book was reissued in paperback, and uh, people who are Great. working in the space often I say, you, even... you speak my language, yeah. and I, you know, this is Great. my life. So I'd encourage them to go there or to follow me at uh, W. Hennish on Twitter. Beautiful. And uh, since that was, was succinct and very helpful, <laughs> what beyond your – if you um, are thinking about what business schools – should be teaching undergraduates what should be teaching MBAs obviously they should be they, you know those students everybody should be taking your course but what if you could change the curriculum here or at other places what you know for 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 greater awareness of what you're describing this sort of importance of you know large awareness of stakeholders what would you have people learning taking courses in well, I'm about uh, with a colleague, Rochelle Sampson. I have an article coming out either later this week or next week in Stanford Social Impact Review, uh, which is the second in a series that answers exactly that question. Uh, and our punchline is we think we can make some pretty substantial changes within our existing curriculum by getting every um, case analysis, every discussion to ask questions about the long term, mm -hmm. about, well, will this strategy work five or 10 years from now? How are stakeholders affected? How are they likely to react to that impact? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what are the potential costs of those actions? Should we be thinking about them now? Right. Uh, so a series of questions like that within our existing curriculum in every class, if our MBAs ask those questions of our finance, accounting, and marketing, and management professors, right. I think the class discussion would be enriched and we'd be in better place uh, to address these uh, ESG or corporate diplomacy challenges. Great. All right. We're going to take a break. Thank you so much for being with us. Viet Hennish, the Deloitte & Touche Professor of Management at the Wharton School. This is Dollars and Change. 
For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 